Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. I want to start off with a little illusion and ask you, how do you see it? What do you see when you look? How do you see it? Now, just by a show of hands, how many of you, for the first thing that you saw, was a young woman? Just raise your hand. Okay. Hands down. Now, how many of you, the first thing you saw was an old woman? Okay. I'm sure there's all sorts of psychological things that we could, we could assess, but, but if you look real closely, there's an old woman and, uh, and a young woman right there, and the bottom little part is either the young woman's neck with a necklace or the old woman's chin with her lips. And so the question is, how do you see it? Now, I put this up there because it's lighthearted, it's kind of fun to look at, um, but the truth is we see a lot of things differently, not just that, right? We see a lot of things in life differently. Uh, Scott Weenig says that if you see life as a party, and some of you do, your primary value will be to have fun. How do you see life? If you see life as a race, your primary thing will be to have speed and efficiency. How do you see it? If you see life as a game, you'll value winning. How do you see it? We could even go a little bit more in depth. This uh, one pastor in Australia named Mark Sayers, he talks about depending on how we see life, it has an effect on how we function in life. And so life's purpose, how do you see it? If you see life's purpose as pleasure, you'll see sin as anything that prevents pleasure. You'll see the world as a playground. You'll see the Christian faith as having too many rules and the solution to life will be having less rules and more pleasure. If you see life's purpose as being good or doing good, you'll see sin mainly as oppression that comes from ignorance. You'll see the world as a good place ruined by prejudiced people. You'll see the Christian faith as a little immoral and it has the wrong kind of rules. And the solution will be virtuous education. If life's purpose is to feel peace, then sin will be causing of mental or emotional harm. Now, that's actually something good to be aware of, but that's not all sin is. If life's purpose is to feel peace, you'll see the world as a dangerous place. The Christian faith will be acceptable only when it's used as a tool for personal peace. And the solution to all things will be to have safety from mental and emotional harm. How do you see it? That's what we're gonna talk about today in the story of Samson. Because right now in our culture, one of the main phrases is you do you. In fact, my wife said that to me the other day, just joking around. I was like, I think I'm gonna eat something out of the fridge. And she said, you do you. I was like, watch out, I'll eat the whole fridge. Uh, but in our culture, we say it more like this, like only you know what's right for you. And so you do you, you live your truth. But even that on its own, I mean, that doesn't always hold up because we grow when we mature. 
And me doing me one year ago is different than me doing me now. I mean, I look back on the mistakes that I made five years ago, 10 years ago. The stuff, the stuff that I thought was right for me was actually quite foolish. So we change perspective. We don't always see things in the moment. In fact, we view something that's healthy as the ability to change our mind about how we live our life, right? So you do you has its problems because as we grow, we gain more perspective and we just see things differently whether you're a Christian or whether you're not. So we ask that question, how do you see it? As we start the story today in, in Samson, in the book of Judges, chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's eyes, the way that the Lord saw it. They were doing evil. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. Now, if you've been in, with us in the series on Judges, you're almost tired of this phrase because over and over and over again, it says the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. We've heard that five or six times as we've studied the Bible. But here's what's interesting about this one. This is the last time it says it. It's as if Israel is so embedded in the way that they see it that God's perspective about things is about to get flushed down the toilet for good. In, in fact, the book ends, the very last verse in the whole book, 2125, you can put that up, says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what seemed right to him. Literally in the Hebrew, everyone did it how they saw it. So as the book proceeds, God's perspective, how God sees things, is disappearing from their eyes, and they only see it the way that they see it. It's funny because a lot of times, we think of religious people being self-righteous or self-right and closed-minded. But what we find out here is that the people of Israel are actually convinced that they're right. They're self-righteous and they're closed-minded to the things of God. With that as the backdrop, we come to the story of Samson. I asked the kids this morning, what, what's Samson about? And they said, it's about a strong man. It's about a hero, actually someone who has superhuman strength. He's like a, a superhero in many ways. But what we like about Samson is not just his strength. There, there's something about him that we like. You know, we like his individualism. Like he can survive on his own. He's a nonconformist. He's able to go out and fight the Philistines with his bare hands, one verse a thousand. And so we like that about Samson. That hits something with us, but, but here's the thing. This story is not primarily about Samson's muscles. It's about Samson's eyes. This story is not primarily about how Samson uses his strength, but how he sees things. And as we go through this story, we will see that over and over and over again, Samson sees it how he sees it, and he refuses it to see it as God sees it. That's a great question for us to think about in our daily lives. How does God see it? How does God see it? In this story, we're gonna learn that we don't see God's perspective. We only see it through our eyes when we see life through our desires, when we see God through our demands, 
and when we don't see our total dependency. When we see life through our desires, when we see God through our demands, and when we don't see our total dependency. So let's start off with seeing life through our desires. Chapter 13, verse two. There was a certain man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, it is true that you are unable to conceive and have no children, but you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now please be careful not to drink wine or beer or to eat anything unclean, for indeed you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. This angel, the Lord, shows up to this woman who's unable to have children and says, there will be a miracle, you will have children, and this child will be special. He will be set apart from birth. Now, the Bible doesn't prohibit you from using alcohol, but for this particular boy, he was not to eat anything unclean, he was not to drink alcohol, and he was not to cut his hair because he was to take the vow of a Nazarite. A Nazarite vow was someone who took a vow to set themselves apart for God's use. It was so that they would be specially connected to God. They would be aware of his purposes in their life. They, they would withhold themselves from things that other people didn't so that they could be aware of what God was doing in their life. Now we get from this story that Samson's parents asked the question, how does God see it? In fact, once they realize an angel of the Lord has appeared to them, they're terrified because they have seen God. We, we get the sense that they really respect God. They're humble before God. They want to please God. And then Samson is born. Chapter 13, verse 24 says, So the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The boy grew and the Lord blessed him. Then the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtal. Samson went down to Timnah and saw, saw, saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and his mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, can't you find a young woman among your relatives or among any of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Literally in the Hebrews, she's right in my eyes. That's what he literally says. Next slide. So here's the interesting part. You can go back one slide. Uh, Samson is already locked in to not how God sees it, but how he sees it. He sees a woman from the tribe of people that's oppressing his people, and he lusts for her. He wants her. He desires her. So he tells daddy, daddy, go get her for me. And his dad and his mom say, hold on a second, boy. Listen here, listen. Um, couldn't you find someone from God's people? 
must you go and find a wife from the very people that are oppressing us? Son, your life is meant to deliver us from the Philistines. You're not supposed to marry the Philistines. But Samson is unteachable. He's not willing to listen. Now, for for his parents, it's not just about the people that are oppressing him. It's much deeper than that. They know that in God's law, there wasn't permission to date someone outside the community of those who worshiped Yahweh. There wasn't permission to marry someone. In fact, if you go to the next slide in Deuteronomy 7, it says, but uh, you must not intermarry with them and you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because why? Because they will turn your sons away from me to worship. The issue is worship, to worship other gods. In fact, we see this same command in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6. Now listen for the theme of worship in here. Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple, you're the temple, you're the house of worship, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. See, Samson's parents' concern is if he marries a Philistine, not that they don't like her, the the concern is worship. The concern is that Samson's desires have have filtered over his eyes, and then once he locks with this woman permanently, his desire to worship the Lord will diminish until it's completely gone. Now, I know in our culture, I know, uh, listen, everyone's just looking for someone that they're compatible with, right? Like, if we can find a spouse that generally we get along with. I mean, I think the two most important things in that are like chemistry and compatibility. Like you can have compatibility, but if there's no chemistry, it's no fun. Or you can have chemistry, but if there's no compatibility, it's a disaster, right? So chemistry and compatibility, and we kind of go, well, as long as those are there, anybody can get married as long as they respect each other's religious beliefs as long as they give the other partner freedom to follow the spiritual path that they want. But notice, that's not how the scripture puts it. It's not about sharing religious beliefs. It's not about spiritual path. It's not about giving each other the freedom for self-expression or self-discovery. It's about worship. It's about worship. Following Jesus is about centering more and more and more of your life on him, and that's called worship. Following Jesus is about realigning your desires and your decisions and your destiny on him, and that's called worship. And you can't marry someone who doesn't have that same center. Now, I know not everyone here is a Christian. I know some of you are wrestling was on your spiritual path, and you, you kind of go, you know what, this just doesn't sit right with me. Like, I knew it. 
I knew Christians thought that they were better than other people. That's why you're saying that uh, Samson shouldn't marry this Philistine. That's why you're saying that a follower of Jesus can't marry a non-follower of Jesus. I know that you're saying that non-Christians aren't good enough. But if that's what you're thinking, you missed it. It's not about being better or worse than. It's about having a completely different reference point for life. It's about actually not being compatible. Uh, Because when a Christian gets married, their greatest desire is not for their spouse. Their greatest desire is for Jesus. And that completely changes the marriage. In fact, when two Christians get married, it's not just two people in the marriage, it's three. Jesus is present in that marriage. As I've gotten uh, more seasoned in our marriage, I'm about 15 years in now, I've learned that there are things I get in trouble for if I do not run it by my spouse. Now, those aren't a lot of things. My wife is fantastic. She lets me do just kind of a lot of stuff, but there are things that I cannot do without running by her. And if you're a Christian, it's kind of like that, but you're also running stuff by Jesus. You know, and so what the point is here is as Samson engages this Philistine woman, everything's going to be different. They're actually not compatible. For, for the Christian, when you get a raise at work, you run by Jesus what you should do with that money. When you're a Christian and you develop an enemy, you run by Jesus how you should treat that enemy. When you're a Christian and you're raising children, you run by Jesus how to raise those children. And oftentimes, when a Christian comes into a marriage and says, I'm gonna center everything on Jesus, and they start talking about their desires and their decisions, the, the other person just gives them blank stares, right? I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why would we do that with our money? Well, the reason is, is because for a Christian in a marriage, they're beginning to desire Jesus even then more than their own desires. To desire Jesus even when there are more desires because, not, not because we're trying to practice some religion, but because something historical has happened. That Jesus Christ, the king of the world, in real time, in real space, in front of real people, died on the cross to pay for our sins. And when that happened, the curtain in the temple tore in two so that you and I no longer have to go to a place to worship. The Holy Spirit now lives in us and we can worship him. But not only that, they buried Jesus in a tomb and there were witnesses who saw him come back to life by the power of God. See, we're talking about not just a little religion. We're not trying to just be nice people. What we're talking about is there is a historical event that has happened that wrecks everything. So that you and I, once we see what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, we can't see anything the same. It changes our desires completely. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe that's beginning to happen to you as well. Maybe as you look and you see Jesus, you know there's something unique. You know there's something happening in your heart even as you've only desired what you want in life. Maybe you're starting to desire him as well. So for a Christian, listen, when we see things and we hear how God sees it 
and it doesn't match up. I mean, if you're a Christian, you gotta be honest, right? You don't always see things the way that God sees them. You see them your own way. Well, well here's the great thing about being a Christian is when we see things differently than God sees them, he gives us the freedom to ask him questions. He doesn't just beat us over the head. He allows us to come to him in prayer and sit on his lap and say, God, I don't get it. I don't like it. I wish I were you, <laughs> but I'm not. But, but here's the thing. Just as importantly as us having the freedom to ask God questions is us being willing to ask ourselves questions. See, if God is God, then it means that you're not God, and you have to ask yourself, do I see this clearer than God sees it? If God is God and you're not, does God have the right to challenge your desires with the way he sees it? Just as important as us having the freedom to ask God questions is us having the freedom to ask ourselves questions. Because here's the thing, even though we don't feel bad about it, doesn't mean God sees it our way. Even though everyone else sees it a different way, doesn't mean God sees it that way. Even though other people are wrong, it doesn't mean that God sees the opposite as right. You know, in our culture, we have this phrase, it's fine to do whatever as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But who gets to determine what it means to hurt somebody? You know, one of the things that happened in the 60s, for those of you who lived through the 60s, right, uh, was the sexual revolution. And what happened in the sexual revolution was people go, you know what, people are really being unfair to women like, men are saying, women, be proper, but men were not being proper. And so for someone who did what they wanted sexually, they were put outside the community. And so people said, we don't like that anymore. That's wrong. That's, that's not how it should work. Well, then what happened was the doors for sexuality got wide open, and people were like, we're going to do whatever we want. Because that traditional view of things wasn't right, so let's figure it out as we go. But here's the thing, people are unwilling to look at what a mess the sexual revolution has caused. Divorce, disease, pain, suffering. Just because someone was wrong about it doesn't mean that the opposite is right about it. Just because you don't see it one way and you know that God has critiques of one way doesn't mean that the other way is right. Doesn't mean that God sees it that way. See, when we see life only through what we want, only through our desires, we miss how God sees it, which is exactly who Samson is. He's a man ruled by his own desire. He only sees it his way. In 14 verse four, it says, now his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord who wanted the Philistines to provide an opportunity for a confrontation at that time the Philistines were ruling Israel. Now here's what that means. God is going to use Samson's disobedience. God is going to use the fact that Samson refuses to see things from God's perspective. As God looks at Israel and as God looks at Samson, he sees no obedience. But that doesn't stop God. God is actually going to use Samson's rebellion to do what God is committed to do. Now, that doesn't mean Samson's right. That doesn't mean Samson gets a pass or Samson's uh, actions slide. But God is so sovereign that he's going to use 
Samson's commitment to disobedience to actually accomplish God's purposes. In 14, verse 5 through 7, we begin to see Samson going further off the rail. Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Suddenly a young lion came roaring at them. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, that's Samson, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went and spoke to the woman because she seemed right to Samson, because she seemed right in his own eyes. Now, now what's going on here? Okay, really cool that Samson fought a lion. Sometimes at home when I'm with my kids, I'm like, would you rather fight a bear or a shark? And we like discuss the possibilities and which one we could win. So it's kind of cool in a sense that Samson fights a lion and he wins. But there's something here where Samson is even further beginning to lose sight of the Lord because Samson's life is set apart by a Nazarite vow, by a vow that says one of the things that you cannot do is touch a dead body or touch a dead animal. And if you touch a dead animal, there's a way around it. You have to go and cleanse yourself before God and it takes seven days. But Samson fights the lion and he wins. He literally rips the animal piece by piece, touches a dead body, realizes that that will get in the way of him going to see this woman, doesn't tell his parents about the fight with the lion, and goes to see the woman anyway. Do you see how he's ignoring what God has called him to do in order to get what he wants? He's a man ruled by Desire. Verse 8, 14 verse 8 says, After some time, when he returned to marry her, he left the road to see the lion's carcass, and there was a swarm of bees with honey in the carcass. He scooped some honey into his hands and ate it as he went along. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scooped the honey from the lion's Carcass, verse 10, his father went to visit the woman and Samson prepared a feast there as young men were accustomed to do. Samson's on his way. He wants this woman again. He goes to visit the lion, the dead lions, and he touches it again, but he doesn't care what God says about his calling because he wants the woman. And then not only that, when he goes into the, into the Philistine village, it says he has a feast, which really means a wild drinking party. Now, now again, the Bible doesn't say that alcohol is wrong, but remember Samson's vow, the Nazarite vow, not to touch alcohol because he had a special purpose. Do we see how Samson is relying on his strength to get what he wants and completely ignoring how God sees it? His cravings are conquering his calling. His desire is dumbing down his destiny. He's moving away from God's calling, away from God's purpose. He's reckless. He, he's moving away from worship because he can only see life through his own desires. He can't see it how God sees it. That often happens to us when we see life only through our own desires rather than how God sees it. 
but it also happens when we see God through our demands. When we see God through our demands. If you turn over to chapter 15, verse 14 through nine, when Samson came to Lehi, the Philistines came to meet him shouting, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him, like God's still using this messed up dude. And the ropes that were on his arms and wrists became like burnt flax and fell off. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, took it, and killed a thousand men with it. One in a thousand, and he wins. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone and he named that place Jawbone Hill. Next slide. He became very thirsty and called out to the Lord. Did you hear what he just said, though? I have done, I have done, I have done. Then there's a little lip service here. Lord, you have accomplished this great victory through your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Verse 19. So God split a hollow place in the ground at Lehi, and water came out of it. After Samson drank, his strength returned, and he... Re- he was revived, and that is why he named it Hakor Spring, which is still in Lehi today. So uh, Samson calls himself a servant of God, but I don't think he really sees himself that way. Because the way that he demands God meet his needs exactly when he wants it shows that he sees God as his servant. Now God serves us. God loves us. God provides for us, but God is not at our beck and call. There is something in Samson, even though he says, Lord, and he cries out, that sees himself as the center of story of the story and God as a supporting role. Rather than seeing God at the center of, st- of the story and Samson as a supporting role. God, I did this for you. You owe me. One of the amazing things about prayer is that you and I can ask anything we want of God, and he welcomes us. He welcomes us to come and say, cast your cares on me. Tell me exactly what's going on. Tell me what you need. But a little tweak can happen sometimes in that if we're not careful, which is, God, you owe me. I find that when I'm doing something that I think is great for God, sometimes, if I'm honest, it can go to my head a little bit. Sometimes when God's brought me through a hard season, there's a tendency in my own heart to say, God, I made it through, now you owe me. Friends, God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. But there's something in Samson where he's beginning to rely less and less on the Lord's strengths and rely on his own Strength, where he's actually becoming blind to God, and as he becomes blind to God, he's further blind to himself. He doesn't see his total dependency. That's the last thing we see in the story, is that we often don't see God when we don't see our total dependency. Chapter 16, verse one. Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute and went to bed with her. 
When the Gazites heard that Samson was there, they surrounded the place and waited in ambush for him all that night at the city gate. They kept quiet all night, saying, let's wait until dawn. Then we will kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate, along with the two gateposts, and pulled them out, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and took them to the top of a mountain overlooking Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah, who lived in the Sorek Valley. The Philistine leaders went to her and said, persuade Samson to tell you where his great strength comes from so we can overpower him, tie him up and make him helpless. Each of us will then give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where does your great strength come from? How could someone tie you up and make you helpless? Warning, (laughs) if a woman asks you men, how can I defeat you? Probably not a great catch. Verse seven, Samson told her, he lies to her. He says, if they tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will become weak and be like any other man. The Philistine leaders brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried up. She ties him up. Verse nine, while the men were in ambush were waiting in her room, she called out, Samson, the Philistines are here. But he snapped the bowstrings as a strand of yarn snaps when it touches fire. The secret of his strength remained unknown. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have mocked me and told me lies. Won't you please tell me how you can be tied up? What's so fascinating about Samson is he is so independent of God. He's not gonna see how totally dependent he is on Delilah, who's trying to bring his own destruction. In fact, we see in the story that he actually takes naps on her lap, like he shuts his eyes to who she really is. He cannot see. How often do you and I have destructive things in our life that don't line up with who God is or what God has for us, and we close our eyes to what they really are? We depend on those things rather than depending on God, which is exactly what Samson continues to do. In verse 15, Delilah says, how can you say I love you, she told him, when your heart is not with me? This is the third time you have mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. Because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out, he told her the whole truth and, she said, my, and he said, my hair has never been cut because I'm a Nazarite to God from birth. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent the message to the Philistine leaders, come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought the silver with them. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way, she made him helpless and his strength left him. Verse 20, then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. When he awoke from his sleep, catch this, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson in his mind knows God, but in the way that he functions, he does not depend on God. 
He's totally dependent on Delilah. He's totally dependent on his own strength. He's beginning to function in life as the gifts that God has given me are my right. It's my right to exist. It's my right to use them the way that I want. So often I find that I just think my life is my own. I see it as something that I can control, but the truth is we are totally dependent on God. One of the things I've started doing in the morning is I just take 10 minutes before anyone gets up and I just breathe. That's all I do, breathe. And for me, it is a reminder that every breath is a gift. I'm totally dependent on God's will, whether I make it to the end of the day or not. And there's something that happens in those moments of dependence where I can say, Lord, my life is not my own. Even the air I breathe is a gift from you. And however you use me today, may it be for your glory. Hey friends, I just wanted to give you a quick moment to reflect on your total dependence on God. Where in your life do you recognize that every breath you take is a complete and utter gift of God's grace to you? That can seem scary to think about if you're afraid of God, but if you know God to be good, it feels freeing to totally depend on Him. While Samson hasn't depended on God, he is about to depend on God. For after he's captured, it says in chapter 16, verse 21, the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he was forced to grind grain in the prison. But his hair began to grow back after it had been shaved, and now the Philistine leaders gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to their god, Dagon. They rejoiced and said, Our god has handed over our enemy, Samson, to us. Verse 24, when the, when the people saw him, that's Samson, they praised their god and said, Our god has handed over to us our enemy who destroyed our land and who multiplied our dead. Now, the Philistines see Samson and they know from Delilah that Samson's vow has been broken because his hair has been shaved. But they assume that because Samson has failed God, God is no longer committed to Samson. But here's the good news. Even though Samson has lived his life not seeing God, God continues to see Samson. God's commitment is 110%. His promises are always active. The point here isn't that Samson's hair is growing back and now he's a superhero again. No, his hair growing back reminds us that God's work in Samson wasn't rooted in Samson's commitment to God, but in God's commitment to use Samson from birth. And in that moment, Samson is about to see God for the first time, even though he can't see. Verse 26 says, Samson said to the young man who was leading him by the hand, lead me where I can feel the pillars supporting the temple so I can lean against them. The temple was full of men and women. All the leaders of the Philistines were there and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching Samson entertain them. He called out to the Lord, Lord, please remember me. Strengthen me, God, just once more. With one act of vengeance, let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Verse 30, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. 
he pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed in his life. Let's jump back into the conclusion of the sermon now. With one act of vengeance, let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them, one on his right and the other on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines, and he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed in his life. Did you hear the prayer, though? It wasn't, God, you owe me. It was, God, please remember me. God, I haven't seen you. God, please see me. God, I, I, I don't want to demand anything. All I ask is that you see me. I know that I've been independent, but now you're my only source of strength. And here this man who has been reckless, who has been addicted, who has been living life according to how he saw it, now begins to operate with faith and humility, seeing God for the first time and seeing it through God's eyes. We learn that Samson's great sin wasn't Delilah. It wasn't even using his strength the wrong way. Samson's great sin was not seeing God and not seeing it how God saw it. Samson, a man controlled by the way he saw it. What about you? How do you see life? Are you open to how God sees it? Or do you only see it through the lens of your desires, through the lens of your demands, through the lens of you being independent of God? Well, if you want to see it how God sees it, you can see it how God sees it by looking at this table. Samson died in weakness in a moment of defeat, surrounded by shame. But it was at that very moment when Samson died that God's strength was on display, that God was victorious over the people, the enemies of his people. As we look to this table, we're reminded of the weakness, the seeming defeat of Jesus, who died on a cross as a criminal to pay for our sins. But as Jesus died on the cross for us, it was God's victory. It was God's win. It was God's glory through his son. And today, you can see God afresh by looking to Jesus who we see at this table. This table is for those who go, man, I'm like Samson. I need help. This isn't for perfect people. This isn't for church people. This is for rebels and sinners who know they need Jesus and want to worship him and center their lives on him and see him afresh today. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.